look forward to hearing the word from you tonight and, and uh, just rejoice in what God's doing in Italy there. It's terrific. Thankful also, uh, two of our pastors are back in the United States after traveling to North Africa. It's nice to have the Redferns back, although Pastor Mark's still on a sabbatical, so don't be calling him all the time and stuff. He's still sabbaticaling. It's a word. Uh, but uh, glad that they had had fun and a good time, and it's fun picking them up from the airport. Rachel took a vehicle, and I took a vehicle, and just hearing them talk and share things that they enjoyed and time with A.W. and J.P. and their kids. So, uh, yeah, that was, praise the Lord for that. I'm really, really thankful for that, and thankful that P.K. is back from India and Bhutan and looking forward to his message, I think, a couple weeks down the road here, and he's going to be sharing some more about that as well. Uh, then we have some sad news, but good news uh, for them. But uh, Stephen and Jung are going to be moving to Greenville on Wednesday. Uh, he's accepted a new job there. And they're not members of our church, but they've been faithful, faithful attenders here for the past year, year and a half. And I just love our brother and sister and their little girl and um, thankful for what God's doing with you and look forward to your ministry that you'll continue there in South Carolina. So praise the Lord for that. Let's pray, and then we will dig into our text today. Heavenly Father, you are good, you are abundant, and we need you. And there's some passages that are, that are really rejoicing kind of passages, and there's other passages that are more challenging, that are more, wow, this is a hard one. How do I wrap my mind around this? And today might be that type of passage for many of us. Lord, will you change our thinking? Will you guide my expectations and maybe my, my normal? Will you guide how we think and conform us to your image? That we run from any type of Christianity where it's, these are my expectations on Almighty God. But rather, we will be believers that say, this is how my God works and what my God does, and I will trust him through it. Through the storms and through the joys, he's on his throne. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're there in um, John 15, um, I just have a few um, maybe to set our thinking a little bit before we get into the text. So every day of the week, uh, every week of the year, if you wanted to, you could read some type of story or hear some kind of truth about persecution. And that might be uh, the kind of things that we see in Afghanistan, the kind of things we see in Myanmar, kind of things we might see in Africa and other places around the world. Or it might be more subtle. It might be things that we can't count as much, but it might be something like in Iraq in, um, let's see, in 1992, I think was the year, it might have been 1994, there's supposed to be 1.2 million professing believers in that country. And in 2011, that number was estimated between 200 and 400,000. Now, some fled and some died of natural causes, but persecution? Absolutely. PK just got back from India. When he is in India, he typically goes to the state of Uttar Pradesh. If you read about India in the news and you want to read about dangerous stuff in India... That's the state you're going to be reading about. The leadership there, increasingly um, increasingly pro-Hindu, anti-anything else, and in pockets and in larger areas, persecution of this way, persecution of this way, danger of this type, and it appears to be growing and growing and growing. I would encourage everyone here to read, whether it's Voice of the Martyrs or other sources, uh, Gordon Conwell came out maybe eight or ten years ago with a really good amount of information on persecution and the persecuted church. There's all kinds of other information you can find as well. Um, I would encourage you also to look at non-Christian sources. Look at secular sources and see what they say. Um, the numbers will be very, very similar. Sometimes in secular sources you might see they might connect um, they might connect to war or something like that, but dead is dead. So the scripture that that uh, was read for us today has these phrases over and over and over. The world will hate you. The world will hate you. 
the world will hate you. And then it has a phrase, whoever kills you. And I just wonder in here, how does that fit with your Christianity? How does that fit with what your expectations are? Let's say you're a believer in here. Does that fit with what you expect, what you think could happen in the world in which you live today? Or maybe you might be in here and you say, well, I'm not even a Christian. Why are you telling me this stuff? You, you're you're going to try to get me to be a Christian and you're telling me about this? It's not, it doesn't, doesn't sell very well. What, you know, what's going on with this? I think there's some expectations on the disciples given here in John 15 and actually the first part of 16 as well. The expectations are that they have a job to do as fruit-bearing people in this world. But because the world is hostile to Jesus and his teaching, being in Christ means experiencing, at times, the world's hatred. And this is unavoidable because God is not giving up on the world. And 2,000 years after the 12, or after the 11 they are actually getting talked to today in this passage, this is God's expectation on us as well. Now today we're going to nuance hatred some, give some, some explanation and understanding of that. And we're going to talk through some of the ebbs and flows of persecution in different places and in different times. And we're going to remain very thankful for common grace, God's good hand that he extends, and that we often get to experience just wonderful, joyous things, and and the world gets to experience believers and non-believers because of God's common grace. And sometimes God's children get to live through lovely periods of time when there's no violent persecution. And we should be thankful, especially on this July 4th week, that we live in a place right now where generally that's the case. And we should recognize that that's unusual. And we should recognize what generosity and grace God has given even in this And we should be thankful. But it's not guaranteed. In fact, scriptures are telling us today that the opposite is true. So four points today. The world will hate God's disciples because. Because the world hates the Son. Because the world hates the Father. Because the world hates the Spirit. And because the world, even in their persecution, thinks they are offering something back to God or God's, as it might be in their case. Understanding that when we talk about the term disciple, we can be talking about the 12, or we can talk about, in a broader sense, a true follower of Jesus Christ. So why will the world hate? Let's start off in our first one of the world, because of the world's hatred of Jesus. Well, what's the context here in John 15? Uh, many of us are very, very familiar with the first part of the chapter, the vine and the branches. We've got several pastors in this, in our, in our congregation here and even visiting several people who have preached. And most of us have preached through the vine and the branches, correct? Everybody who's done a Bible study, done a word study, Bibles, we've all studied the vine and the branches. And that idea of continuing, abiding, and remaining in Christ is just over and over and over. And it's a lovely picture of you're not supposed to be over here. You're not supposed to be over there. There's the vine, which is Christ, and be in him and be bearing fruit. If you're not bearing fruit, what does the scripture say? It's supposed to be cut off and thrown into the fire and be burned. But we have this opportunity to be connected to the vine. And then kind of the middle section of the chapter is saying, hey, what about love? Well, God did this in love and he shows this love through Jesus Christ. And you know what, believer? You need to love one another. You understand this love because of what God in Jesus has done for you, and we must love one another. It really takes us to, and this entire section is Jesus teaching right before he's going to the cross. He's saying, hey, the Judas has left. He's teaching in this room. He's got the 11 right here, and he's doing some teaching, and he says, don't forget these things. And we have verse 17 is kind of a transition verse that gets us into our text today. And Jesus reminds his disciples these things in 1517, I commanded, I command you for what purpose? So that you will love one another. The Bible is oh so clear that we need each other. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ. And just as much as we know that and we read that over and over and over in scripture, every one of us at different times in our life, and if it hasn't happened to you yet, it will in the future. I am almost certain. You're going to go through times in your life where you're going to say, I don't have time for this, or I don't need this, or this is 
weighing me down or I'm just too frustrated with this this whole body of Christ thing. I believe in the universal church, but the local body is just too hard. And there's too much frustration. There's too many things that are, you know, why is this and why is that? The Bible just tells us over and over and over, Christian, you're not allowed to isolate yourself. You're not allowed to just read the Bible and read some good books and hang out with your family. You're you're not allowed to do that. Over and over, it's, I need brothers and sisters in Christ. These are the people that speak truth to me. These are the people that come alongside me. I need each other. And if you're finding yourself right now, maybe you're a visitor today, or, or maybe you've been coming here a long time, and you don't look out at the group and find anybody that you can say, I really love them, I love this group, we need to put more effort in. Because truly, what we're looking at today of this hate and hate and hate, Jesus says the only way we can survive through that is relying on the vine and reveling in his love and reveling in love with each other. So take that as an encouragement here at the beginning as we get into this text and why, I think we must ask, why the hate? It says if, we see four ifs in this first section here and then a couple kind of because and therefore. But let's look at these ifs here as I read through it. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, and I, what did I do? I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So this is saying the world doesn't hate you because of what you look like. The world doesn't hate you because of your job. The world doesn't hate you because of your family. The world doesn't hate you because of the area that you live in the United States or outside of the United States. There's a hate specified here because you are not of the world and Jesus chose you out of the world. This is speaking to followers of Christ here. He goes on to say, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Here's some more of these ifs. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So why the hate? Well, this word hate here is a pretty strong word. It's to detest, ongoing abhorrence. Um, it's, it's, there's a picture of walking by something dead and you can't see the dead thing, but you can smell the dead thing. And there's something that died over there. And oh my, or this is a corporation or a business or an employer treated you terribly in the past. And you don't even want to drive through that town anymore. Or if you see the lettering on, on the vehicle or whatever it might be, and you don't even want to go to that side of the street because of hurt, pain, whatever the case might be. That's this idea of hate. And why is this hate? Two reasons. The disciples do not belong to the world. That world, I think it's five times in verse 19. And the disciples do belong to Jesus, who the world hates. Well, what is, what is this world? We need to define this at some level. This would just be the cultural thinking, actions, goals, and drives of humanity without Christ. So this isn't so much the physical world that we're standing on. This is the thinking and the actions and the goals of those without Christ. And it says disciples were not supposed to belong to the world. In fact, that's one of the reasons why they have persecution. I think we could argue that at times we don't do very well with this. I have an article here from uh, D.A. Carson and Kevin DeYoung wrote an article, and I won't read off the whole thing. Um, but the, the basic idea is evangelical leaders identify, quote-unquote, poorly formed Christians as among the top challenges facing the church. So instead of being separate from the world, being mushiness in with the world, we might say, a few of the quotes that Carson says, he says, one of the particularly insidious idolatries of our age, at least in Western culture, is our obsession with personal autonomy. We make sacred the right to choose my own identity, my own morality, my own truth, with no major responsibility other than to be true to myself. He goes on to say, actually Kevin Young might have said this part in the article, um, that poorly formed Christians are a major obstacle for the church. These individuals are largely cut off from history. They're often biblically illiterate. They're catechized more by cable news than by creeds. Today's evangelical Christians are naturally being shaped more by ideology than theological orthodoxy. So this isn't to 
point fingers at anybody, but I think it's a healthy thing for every one of us to question. Disciples are not to be of this world, in it, but not of it. And that's just a place where every single one of us has to question, where am I? Where am I right now? And do things need to change in my life? But the disciples, true disciples, do belong to Jesus, who the world hates. In a sense, in chapter 15, we're saying we've changed teams. We were once over here, and now we're identifying, and we are connected with the vine. So what does this hatred against Jesus looks like? look like? Um, I had a whole, a whole list of things in John uh, 5 through 10. We were going to look through that, but I just think for a lack of time, I, I pared it down. And if I could just give you some of these, and this would be hatred against Jesus, but I think by comparison, we could be recipients of some of these things as well. Certainly not at the same level, um, but, but see what we, we can see here. So hatred can look like ignoring when in John we're told not even his brothers believed him of Jesus. It can look demeaning. Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary? Don't we know him? You're going to t- try to tell me this is the Messiah in a demeaning way? How about leaving or abandoning following him. The question, who can listen to this? And they grumbled and no longer followed. You can read that at multiple times early on in the book of John. How about abuse and murder? Over and over in John, I think there's three times in those in those five or six chapters, it has a quote, they were looking to kill. They were looking to kill. They were looking to kill. And then in John 19, John 18, the arrest, John 19, the abuse, and the crucifixion, the murder of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he wasn't what they wanted him to be. So hatred can be varied. Um, Looking at some things in our culture even now, in 1952, Supreme Court Justice Douglas had this statement that was well-received. We are religious people whose institutions presuppose a supreme being. It's not even arguing, arguing centrally for Christianity. He was even just identifying a higher power. He didn't get any pushback from that. Forty years later, in 1996, uh, Justice Scalia included in a speech that wasn't connected to the Supreme Court. It was a private speech, but he said this, that he believed in the resurrection of Jesus, believed in miracles. And I don't know if you remember this, but there was national disbelief that someone could even admit to believing that. There were cartoons that lampooned him. Uh, Washington Post said, you know, how can he even speak to anything? Okay, we think he should only be able to speak to other things now. He can't speak to anything connected to the church or religion ever again. So you're basically saying, okay, so you can only speak if you're an atheist to something unless it's outside of your sphere? And what kind of argument is that? But in in just those 40 years, some social norms that many of us, I wasn't alive at the beginning of that one, but at the end, grew up used to, assumed that this would be a normal part of life, is increasingly not the norm. My grandparents both died in May, and we went out there the following week and spent some time with family. I guess it was maybe two weeks later, spent some time with family. Uh, My grandparents wouldn't allow a funeral. Um, They were not believers. So the biggest thing that I have prayed about my entire life was a conversion of my grandparents. My dad became a Christian when I was five, and we immediately started praying for my grandparents. And I prayed for them for 42 years, uh, very regularly. If they gatherings individually, um, shared the gospel with them multiple times. They did not want to hear it. They would listen to my brother and I more than they would listen to my dad. So my brother and I, both as as pastors, they would listen to us. I think as probably as grandkids, they would listen and be gracious generally. Uh, didn't want to listen to my father at all. And um, we talk about the the broadness of hatred some of my memories that I have of them, they were great. They were terrific. Grandparents taught us how to water ski and cooked good food and loved us. Um, but sharing the gospel with them, and they would be embarrassed for us. They would be horrified at the word of the cross. They would try to stop. I remember sitting in a restaurant, and my brother and I were like 19 and 21, and 
were gently, and they had agreed, hey, yeah, we'll get together and meet with you. And they had not agreed to that for quite some time. And, oh, wow, and we prayed and prayed, and other relatives were praying and sat down, and they kept smiling at each other and nodding their heads. And they were a little bit embarrassed of us and for us. And I remember thinking, this is a really terrible feeling. I hope centrally because I wanted Jesus to be glorified, but I will tell you honestly, as a 19-year-old, it hurt my feelings and I felt embarrassed that they thought so poorly of me. And I think one of the things we have to push ourselves, even in the sermon today, we yearn for respectability. We love it when people love us. We love it when people like to talk with us. We like it when we talk to a coworker and share Christ and they're like, man, that sounds great. I'd like to hear more. But a more typical response is, dude, what's wrong with you? Or, yeah, 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 no, 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 I don't want to hear this anymore. So broadly, this hatred can be anywhere from being disregarded to abuse and murder. But whatever the case might be, are we willing to trust our Heavenly Father? Are we willing to look to Him? But it's not all gloom and doom. I think a couple things here in verse 20 I thought was encouraging. One, the world's hostility is directed at Jesus. And how horribly unfair is that? What did Jesus come to do? He came to give life. He came for truth. He came to bind up the brokenhearted. He came that we might have new life. He went to the cross for sinners like me. And he's being disregarded. And he's being ignored. And he was abused and killed, but we got to come alongside him. What a joy in that. And the second non-gloom and doom is that some from the world will obey. What does it say at the end of, of verse 20? If they kept my word, they will keep yours. There are some that are going to trust Christ. And we rejoice in that. And he does his good work. So why is the world going to hate his disciples? the followers of Christ, because it hated Jesus. And secondly, why? Because the world's hatred of the Father. Let's look at verse 21. It says, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, Jesus is saying kind of this transition verse, because they do not know him who sent me, because they do not know the Father. Now, Jesus primarily had Jews in mind here, I'm sure. But if you share the gospel, you'll find similar things. If you talk to your average person at work and you reference God, most people kind of go along with that. Um, uh, if you if you try to share the gospel at a level with Muslims, at least in this area, generally, at least some of them will say, Allah and God, same thing. Like, we're all good if you just want to invoke the name of God. That's general, not not 100%, but somewhat generally, I would say that is true. Um, if you talk to other people, they might say, yeah, higher power, God, same thing. Everybody's all good with that. But what happens when we start talking about Jesus and the exclusivity of Jesus, that he claims that God claims for him? What kind of things often happen there? I know sometimes in the Bible Belt, people get used to saying phrases that they don't even believe. But in a general sense, when we invoke the name of Jesus Christ, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father besides me, Oftentimes when people get upset, that's when we get pushback. And he's saying here, if they say no to Jesus, they're saying no to the Father. And in this section, there's there's two groups of, if I had not, uh, but now, that's in 22 and 24, and then it kind of bookends in 23, kind of the, the main phrase of this little section. So let's kind of read that through. So starting in 22, Jesus says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But here's our other one. But now they have no excuse for their sin. So if I had not come, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for sin. And then this, the the main point, whoever hates me hates my father also. And then our second one, if I had not, in verse 24, done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. It's establishing the guilt of the world. It's establishing hatred of the father. And then verse 25 is a quote from Psalm 69. 
but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So I think a question we need to ask here in 22 and 24, if you're reading carefully with us, does this mean that some of us don't have guilt? Does this mean that as long as I don't hear about Jesus, then I'm good to go? Does this mean that there's some kind of universalism that, hey, as long as we don't hear about Jesus, we don't have guilt and, and, and we're good to go? What does he mean here in his wording? We know that in multiple places in Scripture, we can look at Romans 4 and Romans 5, that the law brings the knowledge of sin. So we're being pushed that I'm having a, here is what you ought not to do. Here is what God expects. Here is what God desires. And that's pushing us and saying, God has actually drawn lines in the sand. He has said to us, hey, you ought not to do this. I am your God and I'm good and I'm generous and I'm loving, but you ought not to do some of these things. We know that Romans 3 says that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't say some have sinned or you've never sinned until you hear what sin is, but all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there's some of the idea of to whom much is given, much will be required. We have in Matthew chapter 11, 21 through 24, Jesus in his teaching says, Woe to you, Chorazin! And woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, kind of the two evil, 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 evil cities in Israel's history, or outside of Israel, but in Israel's area in history, if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, O Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than it is for you. And you might be here today and you might say, well, I don't hate Jesus. I don't follow him. I don't don't believe this stuff. But I don't hate Jesus. You know, do whatever you want. Believe, Believe whatever you people want to believe. What the Bible is establishing here is that is hate. And that non-belief is guilt. And that takes to every human being in the world and in the history of the world has a problem, the problem of sin. Turn with me, we're there in John, so just page back a little bit to John chapter 3. And we can look at verse 16, famous verse, But let's actually start in verse 18. And we'll read through verse 20. It says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So we're setting some, you have to believe this. Not whatever you want to believe, what you would like to believe, but you have to believe this. And this, in verse 19, is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Here's this expectation on belief, obeying, belief, connected in so much of the writing here. I want to follow Jesus Christ. But our norm is that our works were evil. So what do we do with that? Will you trust? Will you believe in Jesus Christ? I'm going to flip really quickly to Romans. And if you want to turn with me to Romans chapter 4, a powerful verse here. But as, as you think through in the songs that we sang this morning, as you think through scripture reading, as you think, think through the responsive reading, What is God's expectation? Sinners have a problem and the answer is only in Jesus. And as humans, we think, I I can do better. I can do more. It's never enough. I cannot do enough. You cannot do enough. But true, right, change, new life because of Christ's work on the cross. And he gives us hope for sinners. Um, Romans chapter four, listen to these verses with me. Uh, Seven and eight, this is quoting the Psalms. If you're a believer here today, listen to these words and say, look at what my Savior did. 
And if you're not a believer here today, you can have new life and these can be your words. Romans 4, 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man in whom the Lord will not count his sin. Sinner, 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 sinner. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. And it says in verse 5, just a few verses earlier, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, believes in Christ as his savior, his faith is counted as righteousness. New life in Christ. Sins washed away, not because of anything we do, but because of the goodness of Christ. Why is the world going to be against you if you're a believer? Because it hates the son and it hates the father. And next we're going to see because the world hates the spirit. Um, Back in John 15, verses uh, 26 and 27. But when the helper comes, that's another name for the Holy Spirit, sometimes called the comforter, often called the spirit or the Holy Spirit. But when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. He's going to show about me. He's going to explain him. And you also, you disciples, you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Um, All the sermons that I've preached this summer or are going to preach this summer have connections with the Holy Spirit's work in the believer's life and in bringing people to Christ himself. And this one is no different, emphasizing the Holy Spirit's work. I think we need to talk about it in just a little little explanation here. This, I will send, Jesus says, and then proceeds from the Father. Um, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm guessing most of us in here have been part of a church split before. And I say that calmly, but any of us who have been part of that have found it to be as traumatic as anything that can happen within the body of Christ. It's awful and hard, hard, hard. But the second biggest church split in church history, in my opinion, is because of this verse. So in 1054, actually it's before that leading up to it, but officially in 1054, the Eastern Church split from the Western Church. For most of us in the United States, that doesn't mean a whole lot because we connect oftentimes and and well, as we should, to the Reformation. But if you look internationally, the split of the Eastern and Western Church, huge big deal. You've got the Eastern Church saying the Holy Spirit just proceeds from the Father. You have the Western Church, that's more our connection, um, would say, no, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, filioque clause, it is called. Um, you might say, oh, this doesn't, doesn't matter why even we're talking about this, but if it's a big deal in church history, it's something that we should know about. And it says there, the proceeds from the Father, but then just before that, Jesus says, I'm going to send. And the Eastern Church, so think like uh, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Serbian Orthodox, any Orthodox churches, any of the Eastern Church, um, they would say that kind of um, weakens the Holy Spirit, if you will, or promotes Jesus to a place that should be just for the Father. The Western Church says, what are we going to do with these passages? So Jesus says, I will send Uh, Chapter 16, verse 7, um, right at the end of the verse, Jesus is still talking. He says, but when I go, I will send him to you. And the him there is the Holy Spirit. I think the biggest thing we need to emphasize is we're not parsing or splitting up the triune God. Um, We see the Godhead with different roles, but... uh, equal, and uh, you, you can think of, I always think of um, like Acts chapter 5. In, in a verse that you kind of think the name of Jesus would be invoked or maybe the, the God the Father would be invoked when he says to Ananias and Sapphira, hey, um, how could you do this? You lied. You brought this money up. You gave it to God, and then you held some back. You've lied about this. You didn't just lie to a bunch of people. You have lied to the, and you're kind of expecting the Father or to Jesus, says you've lied to the Holy Spirit. So take comfort in whether you are a, a um, where you like doing some reading of the Eastern Church or the Western Church, 
um, different roles, equality within our triune God. And it says the world might hate, but God has not given up. Uh, sent the helper, and what work is he doing right now? Well, there, we could come up with, with a long list of things, but here's some of the things that the Holy Spirit is doing even now. And you be thinking, what is the Spirit doing? He's doing this now. He is working on my, my behalf. He is my comforter. He's my helper given from God the Father and sent from both God the Father and God the Son. So he gives life, Titus 3, 5, the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. How about the Holy Spirit giving power for service? We think of the Old Testament, Deborah and Barak. We might think of Samson. We might think of Gideon and others. We think of the New Testament, Acts 1, 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Where does the power come? Not from my own self, not from my own ability. It comes from the Holy Spirit. How about assurance? Romans 8, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. How about his purifying work? We could actually read this in, in John 16 since it's just one page over. John 16, 8 through 11. And when he comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit is also the revealer. He reveals truth. Uh, we're still in John 16. Let's look at verse 12. I st- Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, the Holy Spirit... He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and will declare it to you. And I just want to encourage you in here today. If you are a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit is working on your behalf right now. He is in you indwelling you, and he is working on your behalf right now, doing these things and so many more. So God has sent the Holy Spirit, and he's also sent his disciples. So what should I do in light of at least these three initial truths, the world being against the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit? Well, I think in light of these, I think we need to be careful to not bemoan our circumstances. I think we have a tendency of saying, you know, well, back in the day, back when things were great. And um, there were certainly some great things back in the day. But just for your own edification, do some reading of the political world in, in the late 1850s before the Civil War. Or do some reading on what was going on um, just before and after the English Civil War in England, you know, so that's 1640s, 1650s. So do some reading on the the evil and the anger and the accusations and all of that kind of stuff. And it, and it is somewhat comforting to where we are here and now. If you look at, at uh, Lincoln's inauguration in the, um, what, January, February of 1960, um, they had Winfield Scott, a general in the army, the highest, I think, the highest ranking general in the army, had a whole bunch of army guys all ready to, with loaded guns all over roofs, ready to shoot out. They had a gun on every single window lining the road because they were sure someone was going to try to kill Lincoln then. Um, some of the just the, the diatribes in newspapers back then are horrible to listen to. But don't bemoan circumstances. Certainly have sorrow over sin, but to say, how am I supposed to live in this world? I have an article. I don't think I'm going to read it, but I, I read an article a couple weeks back and it said, why are all Christians losers? Well, that's kind. But it was written from a Christian perspective, from a he was an attorney who became a pastor. He's a pastor of a campus church, um, godly guy. And he basically said, Christi- every human wants to win. Every human wants to look good. Every human wants things to happen successfully. Everyone wants to be esteemed by their neighbor. Everyone wants to be thought well of. And guess what? Hey, Christian, it isn't always going to be that way. Sometimes people are going to be really, really against you. And you can go on the offensive and you can chop ears off like Peter and don't do that in that way. Or you can go on the, oh, I'll just blend in and they'll never know. And I'll go sit by the fire and say, I never knew him. 
And Peter did both those things in a matter of hours, and we're tempted to do the same. To be these ugly, angry rants against whatever. Is that really effective? Is that really what we ought to be doing? Or we can go the other way of just saying, I'm just not going to say anything, and you know, I'm a Christian, me and God, and I just hide here at my own house. Neither of those are what a Christian ought to be, because we are in Christ. It has this lovely phrase in verse 27 of John 15. You will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, certainly in a, the disciples had been with him. We can look back in John and see the, and see the call of the disciples. Absolutely. There's probably more to that going on there. It's probably the Jeremiah 31, 3. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Almighty God telling his children, I have loved you with an eternal, forever love, and I'm God. And we can rest in that. We can rest in Ephesians 1. He chose us before the foundation of the world. So though there's going to be hate and hate and hate, we continue to trust. That takes us to our last point. Why does the world hate its disciples? Because the world thinks it's serving God, and we can put that in quotes. It says in uh, verse 1 of chapter 16, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Talking to a near audience there. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And we could look at some of the persecutions at repeated times in in just post-New Testament history and in other places around the world. They're going to think he's, they're offering service to God. And they will do these things because they truly have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember what I told, uh, what I told them to you. What's the motive for these oppressors? Well, the motive for many of them is religious. They think they're serving God. Kind of a surprising thing. And it can be because of recognized religion. Uh, we could look at much of the Crusades. We could look at Spanish Inquisition. We could look at um, the, the butchery in Armenia a um, hundred years ago. We could look at Muslim conquest and different things. could look at all those different things done in the name of religion. But the secular people can have religious fervor too, can they not? Think of ancient, there's an ancient hymn Gloria Patri, glory to the Father. It says, glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, as in the beginning, is now, and ever will be. Amen. So a, a basic Christian hymn. And then Carl Sagan says this, I think pretty overtly religious thing as well. What's the cosmos? It's all that is. It's all that ever was. It's all that ever will be. It sounds just as religious as the hymn that we may sing, right? Or have you ever dealt with or read a rabid evolutionist and what they believe is every bit is faith-based and I can't prove it, but I'm going to believe it and how dare you believe it? We see it, right? And that's in the quote-unquote secular world. Religion can happen and be couched in many different things. But verse 3 reminds us that they do not truly know God. Well, why did Jesus teach this? This is kind of a little bit of a review. He says, so why do we have this section? So you're a parent here today, and you're like, I just sat through a sermon with my kid about everyone hating us, and my child is not a believer, and how do I even explain this? How do we think of this? Well, Jesus says in verse 4 and in verse 1, two answers. He says, I've said these things to you as he's teaching them right before he's going to be crucified where some of them are going to fall away, right? At least for a time. He's got the 11 with him and some, at least John is going to stay there. Hey, take take care of my mom. But many are going to fall away. They're going to fall asleep in the garden. And he says, I give you this warning that you re- may remember when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. The persecution is going to come and is going to happen. When, what it's going to look like, no idea. But Jesus says, I'm, I'm giving a warning. And he's giving us that warning as well. And what does he say there in verse 1? I've said these things to you to keep you 
from falling away. One of the most heartbreaking things that we can experience as a church is seeing people fall away from Christ. Now, if someone leaves the church here and they go to a gospel preaching church, it still can hurt. Because like, hey, I love them. I like seeing them on Sunday. But hey, they're with Christ. They're following Christ. Praise the Lord for that. Someone moves to another area. And I, I like getting to know this person or that person. But praise the Lord. They're going to have an influence on their community where they're going to. Praise the Lord for that. But you know in your family and in your church family, when people fall away and say, eh, how much does that break our hearts? And it should. And Jesus says, you know what will help you to understand to not fall away? That this is how intense being a Christian is. Being a Christian isn't just, oh, everything was just so lovely and my life's just been getting better and better. You have you are in Christ and you are hidden in Christ and you're in his hand. There can be really, really hard things. And this warning is for that purpose. Connecting to 15, 1 through 17 in the vine. Question you might ask today, uh, but doesn't persecution make the church stronger? We hear that often. Remember growing up hearing that, hey, if only person, persecution would come and make the church stronger. There's some yes and no to that. If you lived in North Africa right now, and you said, hey, how's it going for the believing church in North Africa over the last 1,400 years from the rise of Islam? You would say it hasn't, persecution has not gone very well because there's not very many Christians there. And at one time, North Africa had a huge amount of believers, churches all over the place. Persecution can be really, really rough. Now, the flip side of that would be, if you read Voice of the Martyrs and other things as well, you can hear these Lovely testimonials from believers all over the world that are saying, hey, there's active persecution in my life right now. But I hear this especially, I hear this a lot from Southeast Asia. Um, we'll say this, don't pray for persecution to stop. Pray that we would be faithful. And here's another thing they always add, don't forget me. And every time I read that, I think, ah, I don't even know these people. In this earth, I'll almost assuredly never meet them. But in eternity, my brothers and sisters now, and in eternity, for eternity, forever, we're going to be praising the Lord together. Do not forget those going through persecution. So what should my life look like in this world today as a follower of Jesus? A few thoughts here. I have five things, and this will go quickly. One, what should my life look like? Tell the truth. Do what you say you're going to do. Be honorable, be respectful and kind. Don't give people reason outside of Christ to dislike you. Because sometimes Christians can be really unlikable and say, oh, I'm being persecuted because I'm a Christian. No, you're just mean and they don't like you. Be kind. Be a person that they say, hey, that person, they're loving and kind. Be that person. Two, be a good citizen. Romans 13, be, be thankful and recognize that the government that God has is under his authority and that is who God has instituted and God is not a small God. Now, pray for them and vote and get involved and run for office and, and all those things, absolutely. Be good citizens, get involved. Three, care for the hurting. At times when Christians are maligned, I am really thankful that I can say, historically, Christians have done more good in the world than any other group of people as far as caring for the hurting and hospitals and sending aid and feeding the hungry, caring for orphans and adoption and foster care. And it's hard work and it's often not pretty, but it's pretty to God. So think about that in your challenging, difficult circumstances. Four, agree with God when Jesus says in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. Be careful about going along with the crowd. Protestants, many Protestants did really poorly when when abortion began to be mainstream, especially in Southeast United States. And that ought not to have been. Now today, really over the past 30 years, 35 years, it's gotten a lot better. But 
initial stages, not very good. Slavery kind of questions. Many Christians have stepped up to the plate historically, have done really, really good work, but many did not. So I think it's important to us to ask, where do I have blind spots? How is the world influencing me? There's a pastor named Basil Manley Jr. who, as a pastor in 1821, said this. He's a young pastor, and he's in the South. And he says this, slavery is an evil on which this country has long groaned. And he went on and talked more about it. Basil Manley's a really good preacher. He's, people really like him. He goes to a bigger church and a bigger church and a bigger church. And he gets more notoriety. Good enough that he's, he's in, one of his sermons is in a Tom Nettles book today of some great sermon. I've never read it that, that he wrote. Basil Manley by 1837, and certainly by the Civil War, here's Basil Manley in 1837. So in 1821, slavery is an evil under which this country has long groaned. 1837, hey, I'm going to go from being a pastor. University of Alabama is going to hire me as a president. I'm going to make bank. Here's what he says. Slavery is divinely sanctioned. Slavery is defended because it's a duty to God. Then he has an awful sermon comparing ants, and he says this is the natural order of things, and this is why we should have slavery, because some ants make other ants do things. Basil Manley Jr. is one of the leaders of the SBC. He's one of the people that started the Southern Baptist Convention, of which we are part. Well, I can't repent for him. He stands before a holy God. But I will say this. As a young pastor, he said some pretty God-honoring things about slavery. And at some point was saying some stuff that I find abhorrent. And why is this? He was being influenced by the world around him. And I just, I, I beg us in here today, don't let the world push your thinking. God's word has to push our thinking. How is the world influencing me and what blind spots might I have? And then the fifth and last thing for us. Let's pray for the persecuted church. Weep with them. We should be preparing ourselves and our children and our grandchildren, not in a woe is me, not as a, oh, we should be terrified, but as a, things are always going to wax worse and worse. But we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who we can trust in, and he is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise your name. It's hard to hear even in, even as we look in this text. Here is Almighty God and His Son Jesus, the Spirit, creator of this world, and look at what the creation is doing. Sustainer of this world, and look at what the creation is doing, saying, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And as believers, we have such a temptation to say, wait, but I want them to like me. I want to be esteemed. I want to be thought much of. I want to have success, however it might be defined. Father, may we repent of our sin. May we not live for social standing. May we not live for the world's acclaim. May we live for the acclaim of Jesus Christ. Well done, good and faithful servant. And in his name we pray, amen.